0: Hello, I'm Rick Cottom. Welcome to Your Maryland. From the beginning, coaches believed that boys from deprived childhoods made the best football players, like the kid growing up in Pittsburgh who lost his father when he was five. His mother took over the family coal business, and he delivered coal into his neighbor's cellars, shoveling two tons for a quarter. But he hardly grew. As a high school quarterback, he stood five foot ten and weighed only 135 pounds. He was unbearably shy. On Friday nights, He'd take his girl and her girlfriend to the school dance, then wait for them in the parking lot until it was over. He made All-City quarterback his senior year, but no one cared. Notre Dame thought he was too small to play, that he'd get hurt. Indiana was interested for a while, then changed its mind. He went to Louisville and earned the starter's job his freshman year. Two years later, the team plunged to mediocrity and an academic scandal, and any buzz among the Pro Scouts all but vanished. The Pittsburgh Steelers eventually took him in the ninth round of the draft. When he reported to camp in the summer of 1955, the Pittsburgh veterans began calling him Clem, after comedian Red Skelton's character Clem Kadiddlehopper. When he asked for his daily whites, the t-shirt, shorts, socks, and athletic supporter stacked at every player's locker, the trainer pointed to a pile on the floor and told him to pick him out himself. The coach didn't like him either. The Steelers already had three quarterbacks, and the kid was slow to learn the playbook. Through five exhibition games, he didn't take a snap. The owner's sons were amazed by his accuracy throwing the ball in practice and pleaded with their father to give him a shot. But three weeks before the season started, he was cut. He hitchhiked home to save bus fare. His young wife, the girl he'd waited for in the parking lot, met him at the door with a present. She'd bought tickets so their families could see him at the Steelers' home opener. The Cleveland Browns needed help at quarterback, but at the last minute coaxed the legendary Otto Graham out of retirement. Maybe next year, they said. He started working construction and playing semi-pro ball for $6 a game in the Steel Bowl conference. He told his wife to take the $6 and not pay bills, but do something for herself. Down in Baltimore, the Colts were building something special under Coach Wee Bubank, becoming younger, bigger, faster, better. One day, Eubank got an unsigned postcard from Pittsburgh. There's a boy in Sandlot Ball here who's worth looking at, it said. Eubank already had a quarterback in George Shaw, but when his backup retired to attend law school, Eubank gave the boy a call. Baltimore, the kid discovered, was nothing like Pittsburgh. His daily whites were piled neatly by his locker. Veterans took him aside and taught him things. Their spirit was infectious. Eubank worked on his passing. Thinking the kid threw too low... He strung a volleyball net across the line of scrimmage and had him throw everything over it. In the fourth game of the season, against the Chicago Bears, Shaw went down with an injury. The kid took over at quarterback and became an instant disaster. He fumbled his first handoff, leading to a Bears touchdown. Chicago intercepted his first pass and ran it all the way back for another. The final humiliating score, Bears 58, Colts 27. Nevertheless, he impressed teammates and opponents alike with his toughness his willingness to stand in until the last moment before getting rid of the ball. The next week, he led the Colts to a 28-21 win over the Packers. In New York, as he trotted onto the field, still undersized and bony, with painfully skinny legs, Giants quarterback Charlie Connerly turned to star running back Frank Gifford and said, look at that goofy SOB. Gifford and Connerly didn't know it, but they and the rest of pro football were about to meet Johnny Unitas, the greatest quarterback ever to play the game.